Hello, everyone. I'm here today with the controversial yet irrepressible Ricardo Duchesne. He is a historical sociologist and former professor at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. How is your day going, Ricardo? It is going well. I mean, now we are going past the summer, so we're getting into the rainy season. And today it's been raining all day, but it is fine. I'm used to this weather now. All right. Before we start discussing Canada and its experiment with multiculturalism, could you tell my audience a bit about yourself and your previous academic career and also briefly what you're doing in the present? Yes, I was teaching at the University of New Brunswick, which is in the province of New Brunswick, for about 25 years. And about three years ago, I took early retirement because I experienced an academic mobbing. You can Google this to find about what happened. But essentially, it was because of my views. I have written a lot about what makes Western civilization different from other civilizations. And the book that I wrote uh, first about that topic was titled The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. And then I wrote another book called Faustian Man in a Multicultural Age. And after that, I wrote Canada in Decay, uh, which actually became a bestseller in Amazon and it still sells well after four years since it was published. Actually, it may be already five years. Yes, five years. And um, uh, that attracted a lot of attention, uh, that book. And I think it played a big role in creating this atmosphere at my university, which eventually led to an academic mobbing that somebody wrote about. Somebody wrote specifically about that mobbing. And um, since then, I have been doing research and writing articles. And basically, in addition to being interested in what makes the West different, I have now for, I would say for almost 10 years, come to the realization that which is something that many Americans and people in the West are starting to realize finally, that um, there is really a systematic attack on European descendants, on white people, and that when we talk about woke culture, we shouldn't think of it just as an ideology that is simply about politics and postmodernism and Marxism. But it's also really an ideology that is driven by this program that is going on across the West, which is about diversifying through immigration the nations of Europe. And so it's not just the United States or Canada or Australia. It's actually nations that were not uh, so-called immigrant nations, uh, nations like Germany, like Sweden, Norway, and so on. So that's one of the things I have been writing about in recent years. 
Now, that, this is a perfect segue because when I think of Canada, I generally associate it with the cultural left, meaning it's a place where you can expect a whole array of politically correct memes to emerge. For example, multiculturalism, the policing of language when it comes to like misgendering, mass migration, sexual deviancy, etc. What processes have brought about this seemingly monolithic PC consensus that has engulfed all of Canada and most of the West for that matter? Yes, uh, most of the West. A uh, talker last night actually said that Canada uh, is at the forefront of woke politics, of suppressing freedom of speech, of uh, imposing very stringent uh, vaccination mandates, suppressing freedom of expression, and so on. And he's right about that with the election of Justin Trudeau that became apparent. Uh, he's a typical young guy who was selected by powerful globalists as a very suitable candidate that would appeal to a young generation uh, and to make them accept this whole new close-minded ideology that has really accelerated. Because what we saw since the George Floyd riots is essentially an acceleration of what was already an ongoing political process, which many conservatives in Canada and the United States did not fully understand, did not fully realize how radical uh, the ultimate intentions of this people. And now they're beginning to realize that since the George Floyd, I mean, uh, Tucker is one example. He himself admits it, that he did not think that these people on the left were so radical and so determined to destroy the identity of the United States. But this is becoming now a pattern across uh, the Western world. And yes, Canada in many ways, has been at the forefront in recent years of this, in part because multiculturalism in Canada, in comparison to the United States, to Sweden, to Germany and Italy and other nations like France, Britain, uh, has worked. And I use the word in quotation marks because uh, we do have a system in which we try and filter out some of the best uh, immigrants. Uh, so, you know, you can get into the details and realize that a lot of people come here, you see it on the streets that really are not adequate by their own standards to be here. But in relative terms, it has been successful in that we don't see major terrorist attacks as we saw a few years ago in France or other areas of Europe. We don't see the kind of crazy open borders that you see in the United States and uh, people just walking in that have zero qualifications in terms of education, uh, the English language and so on. So in that respect, Canada has been relatively successful. And also Canada has been at the forefront of this idea of multiculturalism. The major theories of multiculturalism came from Canada. So Canada was showcased to the world. Uh, in Germany, in other areas in Europe, the foremost uh, theorists like Charles Taylor, 
uh, Will Kim Lika, they will go there continuously to tell Europeans, look, Canada is a very successful case. Uh, this is what you need to do if you want to imitate what we are doing. So in that respect, the globalists know that Canada can be used as a model to the world to make them believe that it is a workable agenda, this idea of multiculturalism. But we have all kinds of problems. I mean, you don't have to point to violence or terrorism. Uh, you simply have to point to the fact that what we're witnessing is both a replacement of a people and a replacement of their culture. In the schools, in universities, uh, students barely hear anything, if ever positive, about the history of the Canadians who created this nation. Uh, so it, to me, that is extremely important that that history is not being taught, that the settlers who really created a nation in a very cold climate under very harsh conditions are always painted in a negative way as people who committed genocide against the natives and all this nonsense. So it's something to think about that Canada it has been used as a model for that reason, even though Tensions are rising here as well. A vast proportion of people in Canada hate Justin Trudeau. And as I said, just yesterday, I think Stats Canada came with their projections about demographics in Canada. And uh, by the year 2041, which is under 20 years, uh, white Canadians will be less than half of the population in Canada. So this is faster than I had even anticipated. So to me, this is a dramatic alteration that has major cultural implications. Yeah, I want to touch upon the demographic question because Canada, like most of the collective West, has had a hostile ruling class that has imposed mass migration, specifically coming from non-European countries on the historic population. Do you know the specifics offhand of the exact racial slash ethnic demographics in Canada in the present? Well, I mean, just uh, generally in terms of whites and non-whites, or you mean breaking it down in terms of a specific ethnic groups? Let's do with just like racial, if you can more or less break it down? I would say roughly speaking, it's not easy because uh, Stats Canada doesn't include native Canadians as non-whites. They're a separate category. Or when they talk about the immigrant population, they talk about it as a group and they don't always differentiate between European immigrants and non-European immigrants. So in that respect, it's not always easy to know. But I would say, roughly speaking, right now, the white population of Canada is something like 60%, 65% of the population. The major cities of Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary even, Montreal, and other cities are either like Toronto, already majority non-white, or getting close to that proportion. 
And the cities do matter because that's where the economic power, the culture, the institutions are concentrated. So uh, once the cities go, it's only a matter of time before the other rural areas go. And in Canada, there is a program that was implemented a few years ago, uh, which is intended to uh, drop as many immigrants as possible in rural areas. And they're doing this. I see it in my own city where I live, in the city of St. John, uh, New Brunswick. In the last few years, right during the COVID lockdowns, uh, there was an acceleration in the number of immigrants, particularly from India and from Africa. They have increased uh, in a very noticeable way. So I would say that, yes, officially, since Justin came into power, that was in 2016, immigration per year has been over 300,000. So you can imagine over 300,000 people arriving every year. We only have around 30, 33 million people here. So it's very noticeable and there is no end inside. Uh, that's one of the things that people don't ask. When will it be enough? Uh, and there isn't. They have not an agenda, which is that by the end of this century, they would like the population of Canada to be 100 million from what it was a few years ago. It was 30 million when this plan came about. Uh, they want to increase it to 100 million, and it will come essentially through immigration. So as this report came out, just the other day from Stats Canada, by the year 2041, they're already saying that whites will be less than 50%. Now, you had the passage of Hart Seller in 1965 that kick-started the U.S.'s mass migration experiment. What year or decade would you say that the mass migration floodgates were opened up in earnest in Canada? Yes, I write about this quite a bit in my book, Canada in Decay. I would say that it started during the government, the conservative government of uh, Mulroney in the late 1980s to early 1990s. I was living in Toronto in the first half of the 1990s, and I was a leftist then, and I remember... Uh, noticing this and reading articles in the mainstream press. In those days, you could write about these things of some journalists being taken aback about the sudden rush of immigrants and the changing character of neighborhoods. You cannot do that today. But I remember reading those articles and realizing that I didn't quite like it even then when I was a leftist because I never liked the whole idea that a people give away their heritage and somehow look down upon what their ancestors did. That just strikes me as dishonorable. So I, I didn't like it. But in any case, the point is that I would say that started in the early 1990s and since then, it has been continuous. There has been no stop. I mean, sometimes it goes up or down, 
but the range since that time is 200,000 up to 350,000 per year. Man, that is quite astonishing. And this is predominantly legal migration, correct? Yes, you're not counting illegal uh, migration. We don't have as many legals as in the United States, of course, but we do have it, particularly in Quebec. Many Haitians have come through Quebec the last few years. But yeah, this is legal migration. And um, the thing is that the whole establishment, the academic world, the media, have framed this process as a natural process, as something that grew out of Canada's history. Uh, And they're very deceptive in the way they have offered this narrative of Canada being inherently a diverse nation from the beginning, which is not true, as I argue in my book, Canada in Decay, uh, most Canadians throughout history before the 1990s were born in Canada. The people who came in in the first centuries were really settlers, not immigrants. I use the definition of Huntington that he uses for a settler, which is a person who arrives in a land that's relatively undeveloped. They're in charge of building farms, uh, roads, railways, cities, infrastructure. So uh, these first settlers built Canada and then they used to have very large families. You take, for example, Quebec. In Quebec, some immigrants came from France in the 1600s, but really through the 1700s into the 1800s, barely any immigrants came in. The population grew because uh, Quebecois families had on average five 0.4 children per family. So that's what allowed the population to grow. So the Quebecois as a people are really native to Quebec. They cannot be found anywhere else in the world. So the notion that they're immigrants is just a lie. So yes, I mean, it's really been in recent years that you see this onrush of uh, many, many hundreds of thousands of immigrants. What are the principal nationalities that are moving to Canada these days? For a while, it was Chinese. I would say from 2000 to 2015. I mean, I don't have the exact numbers right now, but the Chinese were a big component. Uh, Filipinos were also a big component. More recently, it's people from India. I have noticed that, and I think you will notice this in the United States as well, that Indians are becoming a very predominant immigrant group. There are other people. I mean, there are a lot of people from Africa, from the Caribbean, uh, from Muslim nations. And then there are a few people that come from Europe, but it's a minority in comparison to non-Europeans. I've noticed that In the Canada's Pacific Coast, specifically Vancouver, there is a pretty significant 
Chinese population. And there is a big geopolitical component to mass migration that many people across the political spectrum are in denial about. And you notice this in, in the US where you have a lot of Chinese nationals as students and also that are embedded in the corporate sector that do a lot of espionage for the Chinese Communist Party. Does Canada have similar issues with Chinese nationals also committing huge acts of like espionage on behalf of the CCP? Yes, I wrote an article about two years ago detailing the extent to which Canadian universities have reached partnerships with China, both to bring students, international students, many of whom get citizenship, and here you can get double citizenship, so you remain a Chinese and you can be a Canadian at the same time. And these universities get money from the Chinese government to conduct research together with the Chinese in which the Chinese are able to gain access to the latest science, the latest technology of the Western world. And the Canadians don't mind. They think this is internationalism, this is cooperation and harmony. But there have been cases, and I can't quite remember the names now, but there have been cases in which even the mainstream media, like the Glove and the Mail, have reported about this. This has happened also in the United States in which some researcher from China has engaged in suspicious activities, has done things to transfer technology and know-how to the Chinese government. So yes, I mean, the Canadian government is extremely naive. This is true for the whole Western world. They have no sense of geopolitics, no sense that uh, nations across the world are naturally contesting for their own interests. And so they don't believe in this notion that the West believes, which is that you can harmoniously cooperate and somehow some other nation is not going to look out for themselves. Uh, so the West is just handing out a lot of knowledge to the rest of the world. It has been doing this actually for decades and decades. And they see Canada as a weak link because they know that since Pierre Trudeau, who is the father of Justin Trudeau, came into power, there is this friendship with the Chinese. I recall reading a bit about a book that the brother of Justin Trudeau wrote, uh, one of the sons of Pierre Trudeau, another son, in, about China, and in which he says that his father instilled upon his son this sense that China, you have to respect it, that it is a civilization unlike any other civilization because it has been around for centuries and you should be in awe of them. And so this was transmitted to his sons and to Justin. Justin, there is a video there in which he says he admires China. So I don't see the, the Canadian government really taking any hard measures. Uh, the Chinese have bought a lot of land here. They have invested in many key mineral companies. Recently, I read an article about that, that they 
Chinese are getting in, buying out a lot of oil, mineral, copper companies, you name it, in Canada. And the, you know, the mainstream media is sort of kind of realizing something is amiss, but I'm afraid that the government, the liberals, and even the conservatives don't understand the geopolitics of what is happening, because this is something that is present across the West. Uh, their geopolitics, the geopolitical toughness of the West is only expressed in the attempt to push Western liberal values in other areas of the world, like the Ukraine and so on. Uh, it is not expressed in an attempt to redefine itself as a different civilization with its own interests, but rather as a civilization that is a model for the world and that uh, everyone can integrate into it in a harmonious way. So that kind of naive way of thinking is being exploited, of course, by the Chinese and by other peoples. I've long argued that the end of history mindset that engulfed the West after the collapse of the Soviet Union has completely distorted Western leaders' vision because they don't understand that nations are more than just consumer units and numbers. And as a result, you see a lot of nations exploit the immigration systems of the West to enhance their power. And it's not just China. You look at Turkey with the long arm of Ankara and how they use, how Erdogan uses Turkish migrants across Europe to project Turkish influence. Because one of the big issues I have with the right is that they're still stuck in the 20th century. They think that it, this is going to be all about conventional warfare out on the high seas or through strategic bombing and all of that. This stuff is much more different. It's a it's like a fifth generation form of warfare and mass migration is, is a key part of it. And it's amazing. You'll see these people that will try to like threaten nuclear war with like China or Russia because of like they don't have like sufficient LGBT protections. But if you even suggest like bringing like a Chinese Exclusion Act 2.0 for the U.S., you instantly get unpersoned. That is the state of the West these days. Clown world in some. Yes, I mean, the rest of the world cannot believe what's going on because they're aware that the West rose to supremacy in the world. If you go back to the early 20th century, even the 1950s, 60s, the world was incredibly dominant in the world. And then for reasons that they find hard to understand, the West turned against itself. And I have listened to even Muslims saying that the West is making a huge mistake by accepting so many immigrants that they themselves cannot understand why would they accept Muslims who then commit violence against them and these rape epidemics, and they don't do anything about it. 
So in the world of geopolitics, obviously, nations like Turkey and other nations are going to take advantage of that. Because at the same time, as the West exhibits this weakness, it also is a civilization that thinks that it is a model to the world, and it uses power to promote human rights, to promote LGBT and so on, onto the world. So it's a very ambivalent situation. On the one hand, a very weak civilization that allows other cultures and races to affirm themselves in their own borders, but at the same time, a civilization that thinks it is a model to the world and wants the world to follow its concept of human rights, its concept of gender relations and so on. And you can see it in Ukraine that the West will use maximum force and, you know, continuously sending weapons there to try and bring about its own way of thinking to other areas of the world. So it's not easy to understand for that reason. And I think many conservatives to this day, people like Hannity and other conservatives get caught up with this notion, oh, the West is tough and, you know, we need to, and they don't realize that that toughness behind it is an incredible weakness that, as I just explained, other nations, you know, they are taking advantage of. One of the bigger political projects that the so-called dissident right, paleocons, whatever you want to call it, is going to have is, in effect, purging these really naive conservative types from their positions because they're, they've played an integral role in bringing about this malaise. I want to talk about some specific policies in Canada that are pretty like striking in nature because your political journey is pretty intriguing because you didn't initially start from the right. In the time that you lived in Canada, which policies that the government implemented made you realize that the regime in Ottawa is acting against the best interests of like the historic Canadian nation? Well, my movement away from the left began when I realized that they were really against Western civilization because my scholarly interest was simply to explain the rise of the West. So I wasn't thinking in a very politicized way about it. It was strictly a scholarly question. Why did the West industrialize first? Why did modern science emerge in the West and so on? So that was what then led me to realize that there was something wrong about the left because the left was condemning the Western world in a very general way. And I saw that many things had been accomplished by the European world that should be appreciated in universities which dedicate themselves to higher learning. So the way I saw it is that a lot of philosophical works, modern science, sculptures, painting, you name it. I mean, all the disciplines were invented in uh, Europe. So 
that's how it began for me. Uh, it was only later after I published The Uniqueness of Western Civilization in 2011 that I began to think about immigration in a serious way. And I sort of started realizing that this animosity against the West is also connected to multiculturalism and the attempt to create a new Western world in which many cultures and many races come together. And so initially the conservative argument, and I accepted it, it, the mainstream conservative argument was that as long as immigrants assimilate to this wonderful universalist civilization that has values like democracy, individual rights, uh, women's rights, rule under the law, I mean, rule of law, and so on, that that would be fine, that the West was a universal civilization and that people could be educated to assimilate to it, immigrants. But then I saw that there was something deeper going on, which is that they really were against the people who created the West, which is Europeans, uh, that they had an animosity against them, and that if Europeans are diminished, that so will its heritage and its culture, the Western heritage, will be diminished and eventually will dissipate. So that's how I saw it uh, gradually, that this was a bigger issue than a purely scholarly question, uh, that there was a very political issue going on. Uh, some people criticize me, academics, they say, oh, why are you becoming so politicized and so on? But their work, the work of academics, unless you're in a very specialized topic, but generally, uh, most academics is politicized. Uh, they see themselves as being on the vanguard of creating a new world. Many of them really truly believe that something is wrong with a European world that remains European, that it is inherently racist. And so the way to overcome that and to overcome ethnic conflicts is to bring people to coalesce together and to get along with each other. And there are many other issues going on here as well. I mean, in the United States, you have uh, the black issue and the United States has that population of blacks and it has to deal with it. And so it felt that the only way to overcome the differences between blacks and whites in terms of income education, would be to grant blacks some special rights, affirmative action, hiring, and so on. And now it's gotten to the point that they believe that the only way to create this harmonious society is to really make whites back off and uh, forego their history and their heritage and create a whole new world of many races and peoples. So this is sort of in very in a very general way, the kind of thinking that led me to the position that I'm today. Let's take a transition towards COVID-19, especially the government's response to it, because Canada's 
was particularly notorious. And I believe it was kind of a breaking point due to the fact that I have numerous right-wing contacts there that for them was the final straw, like the way the governments respond, like the provincial governments responded there and also the national government that they just have decided to leave. Many of them have moved to like red states, specifically like Florida and Texas, the US and elsewhere where there are freer climes. Have you noticed a significant exodus of the Canadian right from Canada in light of the COVID-19 restrictions? No, I, I haven't noticed that, but I have noticed that there is an awakening among many conservatives that a lot of what the dissident right was saying was correct, that the dissident right is not into empty conspiracies, that they are correct that the current government doesn't really believe in freedom of expression, uh, that it wants to coerce individuals to behave the way they think is suitable. And Many of them were just disgusted. I mean, you saw it in the truckers' protests in last winter, all these controls and vaccination passes and so on, that they started realizing that if the government can take these measures and lie to the degree to which they did, or not allow an alternative viewpoint about COVID to be expressed anywhere, uh, that then other people like me that were talking about other issues and were complaining about the fact that we're not allowed to be free and express our viewpoint, that we may be right, that we experienced that early on and now they're experiencing it. So I think quite a few people, and this happened in the United States as well, started connecting the dots. Uh, from COVID, they started realizing, well, the people that really from the very beginning were suspicious about this whole COVID thing, that these were the people that used to be on the dissident right. These were the people that were called racist, that were called all kinds of names. And I find myself sympathizing with them because they are at the forefront of opposing Justin Trudeau's mandates. And so I think that was really beneficial for us uh, it's not just simply a question of numbers that more people realize that we may be right, but that mainstream conservatives became radicalized uh, against uh, the government and they began to connect more dots. Uh, I did notice that in Canada. At the present, what is your primary, primary political project that you were focusing on? And are you in any way specifically getting involved with political parties in Canada to advance more nationalist policies? Last time I voted for the PPC, the People's Party in Canada, which is the only party that talks about immigration restriction. I wrote uh, an article, Why it is that we should vote for that party. And um, also I write for in my blog about sometimes about uh, current political issues in Canada. But essentially, I'm still a person that researches 
about history and comparative studies of civilizations and what makes the West different. So I have been writing articles. I'm writing a series for a magazine called Postille Magazine, which actually has grown quite a lot. Uh, it's very a very good magazine. Uh, it's, the name is P-O-S-T-I-L. And I've been writing a series that started last January or February. And it's about what makes the West different. I write about why it is that most cartographers or chemists or painters, mathematicians came from the West. Last time I wrote an article about children's literature. And in the case of that article, one of the arguments I make is that John Locke's argument about the blank slate should be taken seriously because Western children, more so than any other children, are born with a blank slate. Uh, because in the Western world, we have very weak traditions. Uh, we emphasize individualism and we encourage individuals to pursue their own happiness, to choose their own way of thinking. And we don't want the church or the state to impose values on children and individuals. And also we broke, demolished all the kinship institutions back in the Middle Ages. I wrote a long article about this. Joseph Henrich, you know that book, The Weirdest People, which I saw was very good. I wrote about that, an ex a long article which is about this, the demolition of kinship institutions in the West. So in this article about children's literature, I examine how it is that not only did Western peoples create children's literature and wrote the best book for children, but children in the West are born with a rel relatively blank slate. So I argue against those who reject the blank slate. Uh, they know uh, because they emphasize biology, and I, you know, I, I understand biology is there, but in relative terms, European children, children in the Western world, have an emptier mind in the sense that they have, they don't have traditions. The, the the authority of the parents is not as strong. The authority of the church is not as strong. So children's books and what they are taught in school plays a big role. And the left has understood this. And so the left has taken over the minds of our children. So I trace how it is that children's literature used to be really great because liberalism has always, in the past, been a very creative force. It is behind a lot of the things that are great about the West. But up until recently, it was sustained by some traditions. It was sustained by small towns and by churches. Even though they didn't play such a big role as they used to in the past, they were still there. But in recent decades, that has been now completely eliminated. And so they are left with a really blank slate. I mean, families are breaking down. Parents barely have that much influence upon the minds of many children. Some parents do in the red states, they still play a role, but in big cities and so on, they don't. And so 
I try to argue, and I think this applies in a wider way beyond children's literature, that the left has understood this and has taken over the minds of our children. We can see it now with if you look at children's book today, it's amazing. This grooming literature has been building up for a few years now. It's a total brainwashing process. Oh, it's absolutely grotesque. And I've argued that a lot of the right, some of the easiest ways to get political experience and make a difference by exerting power at the local level is by taking over these school boards one by one and then capturing larger governmental units like county commissions, all of that, then eventually taking over like national government. It's a drawn out process, but it's super important. Like at every level of government, people on the dissident right have a place to pitch in. Oh, yes. Because it's not enough to have an argument that says, oh, biology predetermines our behavior. And, you know, if we can only bring out the biological determination of human behavior, we can defeat the liberals with their blank slate argument. Well, no, I mean, the liberals control the minds of children, no matter what you say about biology. And so uh, we need to understand that and to establish uh, control over their education again, because they've taken over the education. And we need to as you just said, to gain control over all the school boards and so on. All right. Let's bring this to a close. Ricardo, it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Before we leave, where can my audience keep up with your latest projects? Well, as I said, they can check that magazine. I have been writing articles in Postille magazine. Uh, They may find it a bit too intellectual, If they're more interested in immediate politics and so on, I have to admit, I don't write that much about Canadian politics. I did write about the truckers uh, back in February, it was, I think. I wrote a few articles. And now and then I write about the Ukrainian conflict. I am very much in favor of Russia in this conflict. And so I have written about that. I have a blog, the Council of European Canadians. They can go there and or they can also check my books. If they want a more political perspective, Canada in Decay would be it. It's in Amazon. Amazon deleted about 70 customer reviews, but the book is still there. So they can check that out. Thank you all for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.